teaches. And, and so that's, that's such an important component of what it means for us to have a vibrant, lively, fruitful fellowship that is enabled and empowered by the Spirit as He gifts His people to serve and to build one another up, and as it manifests a kind of unity in the body of Christ that can only be wrought by the Spirit of God as His people are faithfully serving and using the gifts that He's given them. So we certainly want to be well-informed and have, have a, a thoroughgoing, you might say, a thoroughgoing doctrine or theology of spiritual gifts that is operable, that, that we're operating in. It's informing our thinking day to day. It's not just sort of like this thing out here that we're trying to ascertain or, or lay hold of from just the standpoint of a, of a knowledge base. But it's an operable theology that informs what we do and how we function as God's people in the local church in a very tactile kind of way. And by the way, just to make a little broader statement, as you all hopefully know, uh, theology is not obscure. Theology is not some out there kind of concept. Theology is always to be practical in its orientation. You think about, for example, uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of the providential workings of God. As we grow in our understanding of God and his sovereign prerogatives and his sovereign work in the world and in the universe and his providential dealings with man and the practical daily affairs of life, understanding these things deeply should have very practical impact on how we view the circumstances of life as they befall us. I can tell you that anyone who doesn't have or is not reminding themselves and instructing themselves and continuing to, to contemplate and reflect upon relevant passages that teach about God's sovereignty in the world have very difficult time enduring trials. They, they, they just do. They struggle immensely with the trials of life in a fallen world. But those who have grown day by day, year by year, week by week, hour by hour. There's been this ever-increasing breadth and depth of reflection and understanding on the nature and character of God as sovereign, that nothing happens outside of his purview. And he works providentially in the affairs of life. Man makes his plans, but it's the Lord that orders his steps. That kind of doctrinal or theological understanding becomes extremely important for the brother or sister who's going through a devastating trial. And those questions begin to seep in. Why, Lord? Why, why me? Why this? Why now? How, do I, how am I going to get through this? And then the, the truth of who God is and what he is like and how he works and what his purposes are and what he's proven himself to be in the past can flood into the heart and mind of a believer. These, theolo- these rich theological truths flood in, and then suddenly, peace that passes understanding, endurance for the trial, and we step forward because we have a rooted and grounded theological understanding of God's nature and His sovereignty. Yes, sir? For His glory. And for His glory, that's right. So again, when it comes to the understanding or doctrine of spiritual gifts, this is the other point, is that it has to have practical implication for us as we work out the the way that the Lord has blessed us spiritually to use these gifts in the building up of his church. So with that, let's read our passage together, starting in chapter 12, verse 7. 
And we'll read as again, again as we have been through verse 11. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is a really great sort of bookended summary of the nature and intent of Paul's instruction here, even in giving us this list, as we've been saying. Just to remind you, I know that this might sound a little bit redundant, because it kind of is, but it needs to be continually, the point needs to be continually made, that this listing is not an exhaustive list, it is an illustrative list. It is illustrating Paul's broader point that there are a variety of gifts that have that are apportioned in a variety of ways, variously to each of God's redeemed people individually, for a variety with a variety of effects, working themselves out in a variety of ministry contexts, but all given by the same Spirit according to His sovereign will and purpose, and for the glory of God. And that's what you see here in chapter 12, verse 7, and then reiterated in verse 11, this nice bookend around this listing. So in other words, as we've been saying, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and even chapters 13 and 14, as you continue on, as you kind of take this this total view here, I mean, what we are seeing here is the Apostle Paul not giving us some kind of Uh, very uh, step-by-step instruction manual for us to go in and pick out our favorite gift or the one that we think matches or fits us the best so that we can start using it. That is not the point or the intent of this. And even just beginning with that understanding in mind and how you think about the nature of gifts, how, how spoiled can the exchange or giving of a gift become when the recipient of the gift is more about the getting of the gift and the taking of the gift than they are about joyously receiving the gift that's given by someone else of their full and free accord. And so this is the kind of the idea in terms of attitudinal or perspectival view of this. We want to look at the spiritual gifts as not not something that we got to go into the scriptures and figure out which one's ours and grab it so that we can start using it, but that the Lord, the Spirit, gives these gifts to each one as he wills, and as we serve and work, those gifts become manifest. There's a much more, I believe, organic outworking of the spiritual gifts. And we will look at this in more detail, and we've alluded to it in past times, how that's really not what you see, and that's not what has been more prominent, even in churches that might be more like-minded with us. I mean, I'm not even talking about this as necessarily a doctrinal distinction, just more of a practical application distinction. Um, There's often this unspoken, at least, this inferred principle in play that the gifts are something that we need to go get as opposed to something that we receive. Now, we're called later on to desire the gifts and to pursue them in a sense, but it's not about going and finding your particular gift and then trying to put it on to yourself to be able to use in the life of the church. In other words, it's not like a trinket is the point. And so when we come to this particular list, what we find is that 
you know, there's not a lot to go on here. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, well, there's the utterance of wisdom. And let me explain what that is. Point one, point two, point three, point four. And on it goes. We have to kind of build out our understanding from the broader context of 1 Corinthians or even more broadly in the New Testament and even making references to the Old Testament if that's what, if that's what would be applicable. So that's what we've been trying to do. Just sort of give a, a summary sort of understanding of the gifts that the Apostle Paul just lists here as, as a way of illustrating his larger point. And then we're going to come back around and more broadly deal with the matter of how these are operable in the life of the church and what are some of the distinctions between uh, uh, temporary gifts versus uh, gifts that endure. Should there be a difference? Is there any biblical rationale for saying some gifts have passed on versus other gifts that haven't passed on? We'll kind of take up some of the more, you might, what you might call more the more polemic debates, the more polemic discussion points around spiritual gifts so that we can kind of have a full-orbed understanding, um, particularly of how our church uh, sees this in, in Scripture. But for today, we want to kind of step into this next one or two. I might not get very far in the second one, but, but it, it kind of dovetails with the first. But there in verse 10, the second part of verse 10 and the third part of verse 10, you kind of see them listed out in staccato fashion there. But you have verse 10b, he says, to another prophecy, to another this gift of prophecy, and then following on the heels of that, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. These two, in a similar fashion like last week, we looked at the, the two gifts of, of, uh, gifts of healing and the workings of miracles, or the working of miracles. We kind of looked at those not as uh, the same gift per se, but they operate in tandem. And we actually looked at them more broadly from Scripture as characteristically sign gifts that you see operable in the New Testament, both particularly and prominently in the ministry and life of Jesus himself, but also, by extension, his disciples and apostles and their close associates as the gospel was going forth and churches were being planted and the teaching of the apostles that the New Testament church was devoting themselves to became established and circulated and ultimately canonized in Scripture over time. So you have this, this sort of tandem understanding of gifts of healing and uh, the working of miracles, they kind of fit within the, the same umbrella, if you will, of, of gifts. And here you have a, kind of a similar scenario, is, is, is this gift of prophecy and then the ability to distinguish between spirits. There's an element in which there is an, an, an interplay that comes out in Scripture between these two particular gifts. It does not mean that you, that you have to see them as uh, you know, together. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to stitch them together in, in in a way that they cannot be seen on their own. It's just that they're in the context of Paul's instruction here. There is this important point of having prophecy being tested. The, the principle that we'll find, especially when we get into chapter fourteen, is that gift the, the gift of prophecy or prophetic utterances. You could also refer to it as is to be tested. It's not to be just you know accepted. It has to be tested. So that's where you get into this distinguishing between spirits. The gift of prophecy, we just will define it like this. This is just sort of my working definition that we'll kind of operate with for the purposes of our study. We'll we'll see this as a spirit-enabled ability to publicly proclaim God's word to God's people with authority, accuracy, and effectiveness. I'll say that one more time in case you're writing these things down. 
a spirit-enabled ability to publicly proclaim God's word to God's people with authority, accuracy, and effectiveness. Now, starting with this, this first principle, of, with the assumption, obviously, it's a spirit-enabled ability, and that's to distinguish it from some kind of natural ability. But, but stepping into this next little characteristic that it, it's about public proclamation, this really is inherent in, in, in the meaning of the term. You have the, the verbal form to prophesy, the verbal form of this, this noun gift of prophecy, this verb to prophesy, it really means to speak forth or to proclaim. So this is about public proclamation. That's the nature of the gift of prophecy. And, and another point to make as we think about this, even as we think about it more broadly, in Scripture, Old and New Testament, in Scripture, prophecy always involved public proclamation. But it was not always and not necessarily revelatory or predictive of some future event. Okay, so when you, I'm, I'm, again, I'm just trying to kind of make sure we understand that prophecy is always about public proclamation, speaking on behalf of God, speaking publicly God's word. But it's not always and it's not necessarily this predictive component, speaking about God's work in the future or something to come in the future, though it does have that element at times and and oftentimes, but it's not necessarily only that. Um, And it's not always, it's not always uh, characterized by brand new revelation, by something that God is revealing for the very first time. Sometimes there will be prophecy that's delivered that is a reiteration or a reapplication of something God has already revealed. So it's, it can be a, a combination of these things. And I say that to make the point that, that if, if, it, if, the, if the understanding of prophecy is only confined to this new revelation kind of concept, so that the prophet, when, when he speaks, he's speaking brand new revelation that God's never revealed before, or when the prophet speaks, he is... He is revealing something that God is going to do in the future. That is too narrow of of an understanding, even from the context of Scripture. I say that because, obviously, uh, when you think about the prophets, for example, the Old Testament prophets, there was a a, a fair amount of of, um, statements or declarations speaking on behalf of God as God was proclaiming imminent judgment. So... You know, the prophet would speak about the coming judgment on, for example, the nation of Israel for their waywardness or their idolatry. And oftentimes that judgment would come in the form of some opposing nation invading them. I mean, it would be that kind of judgment that would befall them. And so there was this, this in a sense, this predictive element of looming judgment. And then there are other elements of prophecy that remain as yet unfulfilled. So that's very predictive in nature. But a large portion of the prophetic content that we have also includes a a restatement of what God's already revealed or just speaking on behalf of the character and nature of God as he's already revealed himself to be. So we just got to kind of make sure we have that, that little slightly broader understanding and view when we think of prophecy. It is not just about revelation and it's not just about predicting the future. It can include or encompass just speaking publicly, proclaiming publicly 
on behalf of God, speaking forth for God to God's people in a, in a particularly effective way. And I'll talk about that a little bit further. Um, actually, I'll pick it up right now. So when I, when I use this term effective, I'm really just drawing out what the Apostle Paul speaks to a little bit later in this study in chapter 14. Now, we're going to, obviously, we're going to unpack this much more in much more detail when we get there. Um, but for now, I just want to kind of point your attention to, for, for the sake of illustration to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the first few verses there. Um, you see the Apostle Paul sort of addressing what is sort of a fundamental characteristic and purpose of this gift of prophecy that he's speaking of. You see this interplay when you get to chapter 14. He's really dealing with this gift of tongues versus the gift of prophecy and orderly worship and what is most beneficial in the life of the church. And so that's, that's kind of the, the context for chapter 14. But listen to what he says starting in chapter 14, verse 1, and then he continues on through verse 5. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for, listen, their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So right there, the Apostle Paul provides some character of this gift of prophecy, some purpose, some, some functional benefit to the church that it is to have. It is for the people, speaking to people, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And then in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds, himself, builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, there's a lot in there that I know you're going, well, what does that mean? What about that? What about that? We'll get there. But just notice the, the repetition of the purpose of building up, of encouragement, of exhortation, of consolation, and primarily focused on the church or the people of God. When you go to uh, the Old Testament prophets, I mean, they were speaking to God's people. So it's for the building, the consolation, the encouragement, the exhortation of God's people. Even in the Old Testament, proclamations of judgment carried along with it comfort for those who were the faithful. So even the, even the, the proclamations of prophetic judgment uh, to the, the people of Israel or the people of Judah in the Old Testament always carried along with it hope for the faithful. Consolation, in other words. Comfort. Or comfort that God would ultimately restore his people, that judgment was not going to be the final Thing. It was going to be a necessary thing, but it was, there was hope. There was consolation even in the most, uh, you might call, um, devastating proclamations of impending judgment. There was always, there's always hope for the people, hope for the remnant, hope for the faithful, consolation and comfort. So this is a, this is a character quality of, and, and a purpose of prophecy in the life of the church. It's public proclamation, speaking for God, speaking the word of God, effectively, and with a purpose of building up, for the purpose of edification, exhortation, and doing it in a particularly spirit-enabled 
an effective way that, that builds up the church. Um, this gift is to be characterized, in other words, and especially when you start thinking about how, what he's dealing with in chapter 14 as we get there, it is characterized by clear, intelligible, coherent speech in which God's word is proclaimed and his people are built up and encouraged and consoled. In other words, there's an emphasis on clarity. Like, make no mistake. This is what the Lord has said. This is what the Lord is saying. This is what you can count on from God. It's to be coherent, intelligible, and powerful in its, in its effect. That's the nature of prophecy. Something else that we want to kind of have in mind as we think about this particular gift. In Scripture, what you find is that the true prophet is one who, listen, speaks on behalf of God, by the will of God, and in the power of the Spirit of God. So when you're thinking about, like when we come, come around to this the second gift of, of distinguishing between spirits, or what we're going to call spiritual discernment, and the testing of things, one of the, one of the questions that we would want to be asking ourselves is, are what we hear, are what, is what we're hearing, or is what we're seeing and observing here, does it seem to be something that's really characterized by the will of God, and, and in the power of the Spirit of God, or does it seem to be more in according to the will or proclivities of man and in the power of man. It's a real important discerning distinction to keep in mind. You see this kind of spoken of by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. He is obviously speaking about the reality of his own experience as a disciple of Jesus himself during his ministry, and even more specifically, the things that he actually saw and touched and experienced with Christ, even a reference to him being one of the three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration when they actually saw Jesus reveal kind of his unveiled glory. I mean, this, this astounding and devastating experience, like full, engaged experience, so much so that at the end of all that, Peter was like, let's build tents, we got to stay. There, there, I mean, there's nothing else. There's, there's nowhere else I want to be. There's no one else, nowhere else that will compare. I, this is, I've seen everything I need to see. That was kind of Peter's response to that experience. So he's referring to this, this experience in 2 Peter. But listen to what he goes on to say. And he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So he's even saying that that experience that he was blessed to have with Jesus, where his glory was revealed, there's a more sure word than even that. This prophetic word, he says, which was a more fully confirmed word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, and here's kind of the point, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, the man-made, man-centered kind of ethos of prophecy is not of God. It's, 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 it's not by the will of God, in other words. It says, 
He says, it's, it's, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And then verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, listen, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there is an obvious reference point to being empowered and carried along by the Spirit. What you don't find, for example, in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, specifically if you think about the Apostle Paul's own testimony in 1 Corinthians and then reiterated in much more vivid detail in 2 Corinthians, the experience of the prophets and the experience of the apostles was not one that would indicate that they were like really jazzed about this calling all the time. That they were walking in some kind of, you know, Swagger as a prophet. I mean, Jesus said a prophet is not even welcome in his hometown. The prophets, as they were called, many of them were reluctant. Like, please, I don't want to do that. Jonah was like, no, I'm not interested. No, thank you. These These were people who were carried along and empowered and called by the will of God and by the Spirit of God to do this important and fearful kind of work that the Lord called them to. And so, and again, I'm kind of getting into this discernment thing a little bit, kind of forecasting a little bit of it, but being able to see that what you're, what you're witnessing is someone who is, they're not operating with like some kind of, you know, swagger. I got this gift and, you know, let me, let me speak my prophetic utterance to you so that you can be, you know, moved by the Spirit. Um. I just, I'm just telling you, what, what, most of what is being manifest in this particular gift in, in a lot of the charismatic circles, it is so man-produced in so many ways. And it's not, the kind of, it's not the kind of character and not the kind of characteristics that you see in Scripture so clearly. I mean, the Apostle Paul is like, we're, we're the scum of the earth. I mean, I was, I, was, I was attested to you by signs and wonders and miracles. So I was one of the guys that the, that the Lord, by His Spirit, empowered me to give a sign that my message was from Jesus, that I was called and commissioned by Christ Himself. So I was given this ability, this Spirit-enabled ability, to confirm the message that I brought to you. But, but that, that's not what characterized me in terms of the, uh, of the perspective of the world writ large. I was beaten and shipwrecked and run out of town and stoned and considered to be the scum of the earth. And that's who I was. I, I didn't walk around with swagger. In fact, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech when I brought to you the gospel. I came in meekness and in fear and in much trembling. Because I wanted your faith to rest not on my speech, but on the power of God, on the power of the Spirit of God. So this whole idea of of a man kind of conjuring up or, or manifesting something that seems to be very much about his oratory or his ability to captivate a crowd, that is not the character of prophecy that you see in Scripture. It's just not there. And there's lots of testimony around that principle. Nevertheless, or I shouldn't say nevertheless, I mean, if you think about this kind of definition, someone who 
speaks on behalf of God, by the will of God, and in the power of the Spirit of God, it stands to reason that this, this particular gift and this particular office, if you will, is held to a very high standard. A very high standard. In biblical doctrine, it kind of lays this out, I think, in a very helpful way. This, these standards or the ways in which you measure this particular gift and this particular manifestation of, of speaking publicly on behalf of God and, and, and what, kind of, what kind of measurements that kind of gift and that kind of person are to be held to. There's a standard for revelatory accuracy, this this reference biblical doctrine says. There is a standard for revelatory accuracy. In other words, that what what the prophet says, if it's of a revelatory nature, in other words, it's revealing new truth, or it's a predictive nature, which would also be revelatory. It's, It's got a predictive element to it, predicting some future event. The standard is complete accuracy. No room for error here. A prophet doesn't speak new revelation from God and get it wrong. Now, why would that be? That's a direct reflection on the God that they claim to be speaking for. Everybody knows that when a a, a man gets up and speaks, that he's fallible. No one's seeing or hearing someone speak and looking at them going, there is the perfect man, and so I expect every word to come out of his mouth, I expect it to be perfect. But when someone represents themselves as a spokesperson for God, and they begin to speak things as though they're speaking for God, and the things that they are speaking, especially if it's in the, if it's in the, if it's the, in the vein of some kind of new revelation or predictive kind of tone or element to it, and they get it wrong? We already knew that you were fallible. But what does that say about the God that you represent? It is a diminishment of the character and authority and perfections of God himself. So the standard is perfect accuracy. That's the standard. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20 to 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that that same prophet shall die. How's that for a standard? And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. It's very simple. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Or another word, ignore him. The standard is that speaking for God means, by definition, you get it right. That's the only option. This will come into play as we start talking about the operation of these gifts for our time uh, in a future, a future study, but it's, it's coming up shortly. But just kind of keep all this in mind. Hold all this together. Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 3 to 9. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, quote, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. 
and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination when you have said, quote, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehoods and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. There is a, an absolute standard of revelatory accuracy held to a prophet, someone speaking for God, because they're speaking for God. There's also a standard for doctrinal purity. This is so important, by the way. This looms large in what we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead. There is a standard, not just for revelatory accuracy, but for doctrinal purity. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, hang on. And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which, you, which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Did you catch that at the beginning? This is a, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. However, he's... Teaching falsehoods and doctrinal error. Don't listen to him. Purge him. Set him aside. Now, I'm just here to tell you, those that quote-unquote are operating in the prophetic today have some of the most egregious, worst theology writ large and on the very face of it as anybody our second graders have better theology than many of them, and I'm not kidding. They are more doctrinally clear and sound, at least by virtue of what's being espoused, than some of these quote-unquote modern-day prophets. And the standard set out in Scripture is that for someone to be a legitimate prophet, a legitimate spokesperson for God, is not just that they might get it right from time to time, but that the entirety of their doctrine, the entirety of their proclamation, their entire, the entirety of what they're teaching about God and his purposes and his ways and what he calls his people to has to be sound and pure. Otherwise, set them aside, purge them. And then finally, there is this standard for moral integrity. Moral integrity. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. We read the first part of this, but listen to what he says. He says, and many will follow, excuse me, I'm sorry, I forgot to read Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Under the, under the uh, category of doctrinal purity, listen to what Peter says in Second Peter 2, verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So in this particular passage, Peter is saying the false prophets, they brought to you heresies, destructive heresies. In other words, their doctrine was not pure. And then under the category of moral integrity, Peter goes on to say in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and their greed will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So there's this principle of doctrinal purity, but then there's also this principle of moral integrity. And I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of lack of moral integrity that's been exposed by a lot of these so-called prophets. And listen... In the contemporary manifestation, by and large, of this prophetic gift, quote-unquote, what is even more egregious is that you will have those who come onto the scene and who gain some kind of notoriety and popularity and some large following, and they're doing their, 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 doing their thing, whatever it is they're doing, in, in big arenas, and lots of people are coming around, and they're creating quite a stir, and then some kind of egregious moral failure happens. They have to kind of go off the scene for a while, but guess what eventually happens? They come back onto the scene and they're given platform again by others in that same camp. That is not the standard. That is not the biblical standard for a true prophet of God. There is a standard of moral purity. And a, a fall of any kind, like we've seen over and over and over again, if not their lack of, of revelatory accuracy, and if not their lack of doctrinal purity, certainly their lack of moral integrity ought to disqualify them. But that's not what happens. They get restored to a prominent place once again after some hiatus. This, this is an indication of why we're, we're going to focus on this, because it's not just that it's confusing It's that is destructive what's taking place in the modern church as it relates to these particular gifts. And of course, there is a great concern that you see all throughout Scripture for the ubiquitous and destructive nature, the the destructive threat of false prophets. Over and over and over again, you see warnings and cautions, even in some of the passages that we read. The concern that is constantly being put forward in the scriptures is the threat and the ubiquitous nature. They're kind of everywhere, false prophets. Even in your midst, you're warned in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he spoke of these false teachers and false prophets rising up from within your midst. So there's great concern all throughout Scripture about the, the, the multiplied number of false prophets and the destructiveness of their ways. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then again, in Matthew chapter 24, as he's speaking of the end times, which basically we are in the end times. I mean, people are thinking, are we finally in the end times? Well, technically, we've kind of been in the end times, in a sense, since since Christ ascended. I mean, we're living in the last days, if you will. But the, the particular end of the end times in Matthew chapter 24, 
He's talking about uh, false prophets again, and he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That's Jesus' concern, that he's speaking to his disciples before he was crucified and ascended into heaven. And this is why this gift of spiritual discernment is so important. This is why discernment in the body of Christ is so important. The other thing I would point out is that false prophecy does not necessarily have to be embodied in someone who identifies themselves as a prophet. Okay? People in churches will claim to be speaking for God to you over coffee. It, it doesn't have to be in an arena. They will claim to be speaking for God to you in a way that if that happens, that must be tested. And the standards that I just laid out must come into play. So if someone's speaking to you for God, quote-unquote, and it, it's absent of, of doctrinal integrity, or they're not characterized by you know, giving accurate words from God, or you look at their life and it's like they're compromised in so many different areas, then they're qualified. If they're offering up new revelation, then you obviously, you know, I got a word from the Lord. He told me this or that. We're going to talk about that. Discount that altogether. But I'm just talking about people who want to speak on behalf of God to you. Discernment, spiritual discernment is absolutely critical. Testing the spirits. 1 John 4.1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Spiritual discernment. We'll, we'll pick that up next time. It'll come into play as well in, in, our, in the next section here. But again, uh, well, I don't know how to conclude this. Just, how about this? Don't be a false prophet and don't listen to false prophets. Okay? That's your takeaway. All right. Let's pray.